11 minutes it is before 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the mighty Metro. We kick things off uh, with the big stories in the world of money. And uh, joining me to help us take a look at some of these stories is Mandile Matandela, who's a market analyst. Uh, good evening, Mklegaz, and welcome. Good evening. I uh, thank you, man, for having me. How are you doing this evening? I'm well, man. I'm well, I'm well. I want us to kick things off, um, I guess, with Transnet. Now, uh, yeah. many people might be familiar with uh, the rail offering, but uh, they're also, I guess, a, a major operator in the world of uh, ports and freight and uh, also transport oil. Now, uh, uh, something I don't understand about the story. So it starts off with a deal in 1967 yeah. uh, between Transnet uh, and Sasol and Total, which is the French uh, oil company. Um, and what was that deal about? And uh, I guess why are we talking about this now? Uh, I don't know how many years it is later. Yeah, so I think, I mean, if we, if we just take it back, also it's crazy how, how, how so far back some of these deals go, right? Um, 1967 is quite a long time ago for it to still be applicable or have implications or an impact in 2021. So basically the deal was between government and um, Total, where basically uh, Total for their natref um refinery were allowed to to to, to were basically given a, a permission not to pay tariffs or oil transportation as an incentive to have the company build the plant in an inland location instead of a coastal uh, location so the issue there now is that um the total as well as sasso who now own them the refinery have basically sought through the courts discounts in paying their tariffs and Transnet is now has formally lodged a complaint with the energy regulator basically allow uh, stating that Netref needs to pay those tariffs otherwise they will unfortunately have to pass on this cost to the consumer money, in the terms of higher fuel costs yeah but but how long was the incentive supposed to last i mean if if you're calling on 1967 to try and just get them to shift their mm. refinery inland rather than maybe have it on the coast, I guess, which is which is the norm. Um, surely, Kwaku is Vumulano to say, look, this is going to be in place for about 15 years, maybe 20 years, uh, or, or was it just open-ended? At this point, there doesn't seem to be an indication, and I mean, from, from the information I've, I've, I've been looking at, but I think what, what Transnet is suggesting is that the refinery has, for a number of years, paid some of these tariffs and um however Sasso and total relying on that agreement that was made in 1967 basically sought the courts to allow them to pay discounted tariffs and transnet is saying that this is wrong and incorrect and um they should be paying these because then it it, it it's dis, um, disadvantaging them on this one so i mean i and i agree with your point right um an agreement that was made in 1967 as a way of incentivizing I mean, at most, right, you, you, if, if you're looking at a long-term, 10, 15 years, quite possibly 20 years, but at some point it has to lapse, you know. Um, but it's looking like at this point it still has implications and impact on, 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 on the entities even in 2021. Yeah, I mean, it just shows us, um, just like with what we hear about these evergreen contracts and some yeah. of these SOEs, that... Uh, uh, we're never going to be able to make sense of the present as it uh, relates to how we deal with the SOEZ uh, unless we really understand, I guess, some of the things that have happened in the past and uh, I would argue the kind of path dependence uh, that that has locked us into. Talking about SOEs, uh, one of our SOEs sells arms uh, and it seems that, uh, I guess, in a tie-up with a German entity, uh, some of those arms and uh, some of those, um, I guess, uh, what do they call as a motto? 
Zamfazwe, um, you know, those armored vehicles. Yes, the armored vehicles. Some of those yeah. uh, end up, yeah, they end up in uh, some of the wars out in the Middle East. Now, uh, a story coming out today saying uh, the Yemeni conflict has uh, certainly been some great business for SA arms dealers, which uh, no doubt include Danel, uh, which finds itself on some difficult going at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the story around Yemen is really quite a sad one, an unfortunate one being, of course, one of the world's worst humanitarian crises at this po- at this moment. And I think last time I checked, there was about 80% of the population in need of humanitarian help. Um, so a new report that's been done by Open Secrets, uh, which is an NGO group investigating and exposing some of the economic crimes, um, have basically showed that, as you mentioned, um, Danel, as well as the German company Rheinmetall, have um, benefited substantially um, from that conflict, basically supplying um, armored vehicles as well as arms to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, it's it, it, it said that they've basically um, benefited about 11 billion rand since 2010. You know, again, it's it, it's one of those where, where, where you know, they in the business of war, you know, there will always be casualties, unfortunately, in the type of business that they're in. But what we're seeing is that we're, as a result of the conflict, particularly from 2014, um, these companies really benefited um, from this um, and, 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 and it seems uh, sufficient um, profits. You know, but it, I think it is important to also note that mm. they've been supplying arms to Saudi Arabia and UAE well before the conflict. You know, so it's not. Uh, it seems like their relationship um, benefited them uh, in this particular case because of this crisis. Mm. Now, now, I'm not being, I guess, disingenuous or anything in saying this, but um, I guess even with uh, that kind of windfall and boon from all of the conflict in the Middle East, it certainly hasn't helped Danel much, uh, which uh, is still reeling from many of uh, yeah. the challenges that, I guess, coincide with the same decade where they've made some money from that conflict. But but, but it does raise some questions um, around the uh, many, I think we have uh, over around 700 or so, state-owned companies uh, that we have in that basket. And uh, the big question, I guess, if South Africa wants to be a certain kind of geopolitical player, how do those look like? Uh, and I think this is, this is the kind of story that puts that into, into very, very sharp focus. Yeah, I think so. Um, particularly, you know, with, with, with some of the implications that this might have outside of just from a business point of view. So I think, I think mm-hmm. definitely it does pull the question um, around, around some of these SOEs and and then again again right it's that broader conversation around SOEs and whether which ones are absolutely necessary and which ones could potentially be privatized and left in the hands of um, private um, organizations you know so I think it's a, it's, a, it's quite a broad um, uh, conversation but I mean I think probably worth noting as well is that in terms of uh, supplying arms into in, in, into that region South Africa is ranked about 14th, you know, with some of the leaders, the U.S., Britain, France, and Spain. You know, and again, it sort of goes into, again, to a broader conversation of are these countries starting these crises and potential wars in order to be able to benefit from an economic point of view. But I think definitely some um, hard um, and then real things that need to be considered from a South African point of view. Yeah, I guess the military-industrial complex is as much in the United States as it is in South Africa as well, I mean, uh, coming from the history that we come from. And, and also, I guess, suffice to say that, uh, you know, um, the, a lot can be said about how stringent uh, the uh, uh, arms export framework is in South Africa and the role that the Department of Defense plays there. And I think uh, that piece also uh, getting some comment there from uh, the Minister of Defense, uh, but let's shift our attention to the insurance industry. Now, yeah. Bandile, I mean, my sense is that the insurance industry has been hit twice um, or 
in two related ways uh, during the COVID crisis. On the first side is, I guess, all of the deaths that impact uh, payouts when it comes to the Alive products. And then in addition to that, I guess from a business perspective, uh, the, the impact on many businesses were effectively locked out from doing work um, and uh, therefore unable maybe to pay some of their premiums. Uh, and of course, these two situations have uh, pushed many of them to, I guess, increase some of their risk management provisions. And it seems uh, that uh, Metropolitan on uh, uh, this particular front is ex anticipating and expecting the third wave and uh, seemingly planning accordingly. Yeah, um, no, I, 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 I definitely agree with their thinking, right? I mean, from, from their point of view, um, the first wave and the second wave probably um, really showed them that um, if, if you don't have the necessary provisions, you, you might be left wanting with the number of excess deaths that we've seen. Um, and I mean, I was looking at some of those numbers, you know, it's quite scary, scary um, sitting at about 140,000 um, at present, you know, with 50,000 attribute, attributable to the first wave and 90,000 in the second wave. And any indications are such that the third wave that um, is being projected to hit South Africa possibly just before winter um, might might be at the same um at the same length, length as, as the second wave, which might then force uh, companies to relook at their provisions. You know, they had originally increased their provision by about 655 million rand in 2020, and they had projected that um, uh, on top of that 983 provision that they already had, um, that they would be able to survive three waves. But I think um, the, 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 from, from the projections and the possible debts that might arise and possible losses from a premium perspective, um, it might be worth off than originally anticipated and i mean i think rightfully mm -hmm. so right you need to make sure that you create the necessary provisions but uh, insurance companies have definitely been hit and felt the impact sure. of the of covid 19 yeah. as, as you rightly said uh, on from, from different fronts you know from a premium perspective and people sort of mm -hmm. missing their premiums and also on the other end uh, from the increased claims that um, they've probably seen over the last 12 months yeah and uh, those increased claims are coming as rightfully i guess as difficult uh, from uh, both mortality and uh, business mm. closures as well. Uh, just before we let you go, Bandile, I want us to take a look at uh, certainly one of the, the most interesting REITs I find um, uh, on the JSC, uh, uh, an entity here with 243, just over 243,000 meters squared in uh, uh, you know, floor space and uh, a value just over 3 billion rand. Uh, in uh, properties anywhere from Sibukeng to Orange Farm, uh, to uh, Tokai, right through to um, Gandoli and Dabangulu, Richmond, um, and a company, I guess, targeting uh, primarily many of those uh, close to villages and close to townships. Uh, and it seems uh, that the focus of uh, many of the tenants uh, who are grocery retailers were able to operate during the COVID-19 lockdown has probably made uh, Fairvest uh, a much better prospect than some of the other counterparts in the industry. Yeah, I mean, I think... We've sort of been looking at some of the numbers coming in and some of the reports from the landlords sort of complaining uh, around tenancy, occupation, and all of that. But it seems like service property really um, benefited, uh, maybe not benefited as per se, but was better positioned with regards to the pandemic because of their focus and their bias towards the sort of consumers in the lower LSMs. Um, and their CEO they, um, came out stating that um, they, because they tend to serve the lower LSM, um, they've been able to hold up well because the group mostly buys, sort of that target group mostly buys essential goods. Um, and then we all know that sure. essential goods and essential service providers were allowed to trade throughout lockdown levels. So in, in as much as they have been impacted in somewhat by COVID-19, where I mean, they've, they've come in 
at about 5.1% um, um, decreases in their distributable income as compared to pre-COVID. But uh, overall, when you compare them to their counterparts, they really did well. And um, they've also committed to paying uh, 100% of the dividend that is due um, uh, on that front. So, I mean, I, I guess the shareholders on that front are, are probably smiling. And um, it, 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 it seems like uh, the pandemic, as much as it was it was adverse and had adverse impacts on a lot of uh, property companies, uh, Fairvest definitely did benefit because of their targeted um, um, and their bias towards the lower um, um, LSM consumers. Yeah, because I guess there's a very interesting story there happening. But my brother, we're going to have to leave it uh, there. As always, a pleasure catching up with you and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Aya. And I think on that point, possibly even more uh, need to why, 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 if we don't go all around is because as properties are busy, pa, ematai. And the other question we must also ask is the role of the PIC in all of this. But uh, so, 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 <laughs> like, market analyst joining us for our business wrap. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we continue, uh, yeah, we continue taking a look at uh, Indau.